Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. They vanished. The ancient Pablon people of Mesa Verde completely deserted their homes and communities, effectively disappearing, like other communities that seemingly fell off the face of the earth. Maybe like the people of Roanoke, Virginia, they left nothing behind but their homes and their spirits, which still live in these mesas. Yes, and like Roanoke, I'm completely obsessed and won't let it go. Today in Parklandia, we're obsessing over something else, Mesa Verde National Park. I'm Matt. And I'm Brad. We sold our loft in Chicago and gave up our city-dwelling existence to live in an RV and travel the country full-time. Just us and our dog, Finn. Thanks for listening. So the year is 750. Native American peoples were establishing deep roots in what's now southwestern Colorado, forging pit houses atop mesas and eventually along these deep cliffs. Huge communities were formed, and by the late 1100s, these cliff faces were veritable cities filled with homes, towers, central plazas. Presumably, these enclaves were populated by people with no fear of heights because these cliffs are steep. Like, if you fall, you will die kind of steep. Yeah, and just to delve in that a little bit more is like you're just looking at the side of a mountain with a cliff, and then there's just homes in the mountains. Like it's it's really hard to describe, but that was just so beautiful to see. I mean, yeah, everything about this park is enriched in mystery and intrigue. I mean, why did the ancestral yeah. people leave, especially after investing so much time and effort? How did they live there? What was it like? Yeah, It's, it's hard wild. to guess, but I mean, at least we can appreciate and respect what this ancient society accomplished by visiting this eye-opening national park. I mean, it's the first of its kind designated to protect a prehistoric culture. Um, and that's when Mesa Verde was established in 1906. Yeah, it's really a milestone and just incredible. And also, it, it, these places established by these ancient civilizations are just so monumental in what they accomplished with what little they had. Uh, today, much of these prehistoric remains are preserved for visitors to tour and marvel at. Um, the accomplishments achieved by these civilizations are so impressive, 
Um, I mean, I can't even figure out how to run the coffee machine in an RV. And these people True managed story. to, yeah. And these people managed to construct these elaborate ancient cities along sheer cliff walls. It's amazing. Had I been alive in the year 750, I probably would have been thrown into the canyon like trash. Didn't. Yeah. <laughs> what I would have deserved. I mean, when you hear about the Mesa Verde National Park, most of what they hear is going to be the historical and cultural aspect, which is definitely huge. I mean, but the natural beauty of this place is totally understated. I mean, we've read articles and looked at magazines and everything, and they're just all like, oh, yeah, the views aren't that stunning. I mean, Mm -hmm. but it's just mind-blowing when you go there. I mean, they really are beautiful views. I mean, they're just so majestic. It's one of those places that just take my breath away as you drive in. The main road, it zigs and zags up through the canyons. There's those meadows. I mean, you just see these soaring mesas everywhere. Yeah, it's definitely a showstopper. I, It's so surprising. I Like, I feel like we were kind of misled reading some of the guidebooks because they, they highlight and talk about the cultural aspect and these cliff dwellings, obviously, which are important and focal points. But it really does a disservice to this park to kind of understate how naturally beautiful it is and how overwhelming in a great way these mesas and meadows and cliffs and valleys are. It's really incredible. Um, And that road you mentioned, there's really just one main park road that kind of goes in and then steeply escalates to the top of the mesas. It really reminded me of the road that leads into Arches National Park, but the, the terrain here is so much greener. Much greener. Yeah, it's really, really vivid which I don't know why I was so surprised. I expected it to be more desert-like. Um, but then when you think about it, Mesa Verde means green table, so I'm like, duh. Um, anyway, after several miles, you wind up by the Chapin Mesa, which is the most popular area of the park. You have a museum here, a restaurant, hiking trails, and access to the park's most well-known tours, which are definitely worth checking out. Yeah, when we arrived, we started at the Petrolift Point Trail. Uh, it's a two-and-a-half-mile trek along the cliff and atop that mesa. Yeah. I mean, it's a real showstopper of a trail, not only with its amazing views, but, like, also how unique and hands-on it was. I mean, this was the kind of trail that requires you to scramble on hands and knees, squeeze yourself through narrow rocks. It's well worth the effort because of the views from the mesa top are incredible. I mean, you just see these sweeping views of the tree-lined mesa floor— I mean, I feel like an eagle perched on a high branch, which is my favorite animal, but looking down on the world below me. I mean, in modern days, you could say it looks like you're a drone flying through the air. Oh, yeah, totally. You have a drone's eye view. (laughs) Yes, a drone's eye view. Yes. Forget eagle eye view. Just kidding. I love you, eagles. (laughs) I mean, the trail loops back around to Chapin Mesa. um, Yeah, the uh, Chapin Mesa Archaeological Museum. Yes, it's great. I mean, it has these exhibits of local wildlife, culture, and history, as well as a beautiful little movie. Yeah, the movie's great. It's always fun. Anytime, just anytime you visit a visitor center at a national park, always see if they have some sort of movie. A lot of them do, and they're always worthwhile and really informative. And let's talk about, there's a section in the in the museum here, which is just filled with these taxidermied animals, especially birds. There are a lot of birds in this park. And as someone who pretty much bursts into tears anytime I see roadkill, it's it's kind of ironic and funny that I'm so obsessed with taxidermy. I could just spend hours staring blankly at taxidermied hawks. It's really 
For me, wow. it just creeps me out, though. I tried to dash through this experience, and roadkill doesn't bother me like it does you. So it's just really weird. weird. Yeah. We're backwards. And, and again, you know, we're very different people. But yes. Very much in love. Yeah, I'm weirdly comforted by dead, stuffed hawks. Um, so after we, after I spent uh, two hours in the taxidermy room, um, we moved on, and uh, the Mesa Top Loop is the six-mile route that weaves around um, departing from the Chapin Mesa area, and this is what takes you to some of the most beautiful overlooks and historic sites, and also, most importantly, the Cliff Dwelling Tours, which um, you, we booked um, at the Initial Visitor Center by the entry point of the park, and you that's a must. You have to do that. But they're very accessible. It's not like some tours in some parks, which fill up super fast, and then you're kind of out of luck. This one, they do periodically throughout the day. I think every 30 minutes, they do cliff-dwelling tours. So there's plenty of room to go around, and most likely, you're going to be able to get on a tour, which is... Wonderful. Great. It really took the stress out of that situation. And for the whole $5 per tour, it's worth yeah, it. Yeah, so easy. Like, so affordable. Forget to skip your coffee if you can't afford it. Go to the Cliff Trailing oh, Tours. I'm not skipping coffee. No, no. I've I tried. appreciate the sentiment. Anyway, yeah, so we hit the Mesa Top Loop and kind of started off. We stopped off at a few overlooks, which were great. Including we, There's one where you kind of look out over the, the Mesa Valley below, and we saw a snake. Yes, kind of squiggled across the right across the trail, brazenly. Why did the snake cross the road? I don't know. To get to the other mesa. Oh uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's probably literally true. Whether the wah, snake realized it wah. or not. One really nice thing was that the drive to the Mesa Twop dwellings. I mean, before the Puebloan people started moving into the Quiff dwellings, they had homes and communities on the Mesa surface, and several of these were preserved for visitors to see today. The main attraction at Mesa Verde, though, is the Quef Drellings, which are only accessible by ranger tours. But seriously, if there's one thing you do in Mesa Verde, you must go into these cliff dwelling tours. I mean, they're just, yes. when you get down there and you realize how small these people were, they were only about 5'5", five, five, um, and how unafraid of heights they mm. were, you know? I know. It was like, it's the perfect place to be because as, like, the wind goes by, because they're inside of these cliffs— you know, they stay pretty cool and calm. And it was just, it was so beautiful to see the engineering of these native people to these lands. Yeah, absolutely. And these cliff dwellings are honestly like the bread and butter of the park. It's such an essential component here. And obviously the most iconic and famous thing at Mesa Verde. Uh, and rightfully so, because it highlights the the work that these ancestral people did. This incredible work, which gives me anxiety to think about because... I, I would have slipped and died, like, the first day. Um, the tours that we did, uh, which, like we said, are offered every 30, every 30 minutes throughout the day, so super easy. Um, we did the Cliff Palace tour, which is the most, I would say, the most famous one in the park. Um, it's probably because it's the largest by far. It has about 150 rooms. Um, huge. It's basically like their version of a city carved into the side of this it's insane. cliff base. I know. It's the Manhattan of Mesa Verde, for sure. Um, Which explains why it's so popular. I mean. Yeah, it does. It does. And it's really, really special to to tour this. Um, the tour we did, it was the largest crowd, which made sense because um, the place is so huge and it can accommodate a group size like that. 
we had a really friendly ranger um, who was really cheeky and fun and definitely pandering to the younger members of the audience. She was talking like a cartoon character. It was really cute. It was like the perfect park ranger experience. She, she was, was great. so amazing. Oh, yeah. She made it really fun, uh, really informative, but also being kind of quirky and charming and reminding you not to bring snacks and stuff. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really important not to touch anything. Just like in Aladdin in the Cave of Wonders, I mean, if you touch anything, you'll be chased out of the park by lava. N- yes. Just kidding. But <laughs> but still, don't touch it because human skin has all these oils. I mean, we have sunblock on, we use lotion, you know, um, all these hand soaps. And so as you touch these fragile structures, they just, your oils blacken them, and it ruins that experience for future generations. There are yeah. some points when you're going to be able to go and touch the inside of things for balance, and they will tell you and instruct you when you can do that. But don't touch the structures because we want right. to preserve them yeah. for our children's children's children. Yeah. And honestly, if you do disobey and you touch something, you deserve to be chased out of there by lava. I'm just going to say that. Um, anyway, it takes one hour to do the Cliff Palace tour, uh, and heads up, even though the tour doesn't go that far, it still entails some steep, um, cliffside steps and some physical maneuvering. So it's not really for the faint of heart or definitely not for people who are afraid of heights, because like we mentioned several times, these are cliff walls and there's no real danger of you falling off. It's pretty well guarded and there are railings now and you don't get too close to the edge, but Still, it's it's nerve-wracking. Um, but as long as that's not an issue, it's an absolute must to do this, um, to see these time-worn structures. And considering how laborious it was to build anything at that time, I can only imagine how much effort and, and time went in. It took decades to build communities like, like Cliff Palace. So the fact that these dwellings were completely abandoned by the year 1300 is so intriguing. Like, what would inspire, what would motivate you to abandon something that took so long and so much effort to establish? I don't understand. That's like me building a town from scratch and then one day just being like, I'm going to leave. I'm done. They say it took like over 75 years to build. Like that's what this is huge. history yeah. is telling us. And, you know, just seeing all these rooms, 75 years. I mean, we can build a skyscraper. In like two. In two years. Yeah. But you're talking about 75 years, and that's because they did this by hand. You know, they went and they grabbed all those rocks, those boulders, and they stacked them, and they manually labored every bit of this. And these people were, you know, 5'5". Five, yeah. five. Like, the, they're not these big, burly people, but there was so much strength and soul into right. what they were building that they were able to just continue to build. Yeah. I know, and just the fact that, like, this stuff just wasn't sitting right there at their disposal ready to stack up. Like, they had to climb way down into the valley and then climb back up with heavy rocks, heavy materials, and you can imagine the involvement with that. And they had to find specific rocks that were soft enough that they could, like, chisel it to certain specifications and sizes and shapes, because there were some buildings that were, round, like, perfectly rounded, and they had to mold it that way, like, by hand and by, and by force. And, and there's no blueprints to that. It's all word no. of mouth is how they built this. And so yeah. um, the a beautiful thing that was in the back of all these caves were these springs. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So the re- it's 
kind of signifies a big reason why they picked these locations is because water in this environment can be hard to come by. So they picked these cliffs because there was these natural, like, rocky springs tucked away in the back of these caves here. And it just forms by water trickling down from the Earth's surface and eventually spilling out and forming these little freshwater pools that are drinkable and are can be used as a water source. And I would never have thought that if I was looking at this from the outside. I would never think like, oh, water is here. It does not look like it whatsoever. And one of the things that they did was they actually grew corn and crops above these mesas. So the, oh, yeah. the men and young gentlemen, they would go up um, the hills and every day and to go tend to their corn. And they would take all this time and effort and energy to collect that. So most of their meals were corn. Yeah, they get corn. The park ranger mentioned squash was a big thing as well. So um, a lot of that growing on the surface above the cliff, which again, how tedious to have to like get yourself up there, harvest things, bring it back. It's like nonstop work and physical labor. It's really unbelievable. And sometimes there was days on trips to go find meat, um, you know, for hunting. You know, yes, they, they were not vegetarians, that's for sure. <laughs> no, they were not. No, no. So I guess like deer, a lot of deer here. So they would hunt deer, dry meat to make basically deer jerky as well, use the hides to make leather, just a lot. And they would thank their thank before every meal, you know, they would they would give their thanks to that animal for sacrificing themselves as part of their culture and yeah. their history. Beautiful. It's just that that soul that goes into this place. I mean, there's so much of that. It's very palpable. You can just get a sense of it. You can see it. You can you can't feel it because don't you dare touch it. But <laughs> you can just you're like kind of surrounded by it in every sense. And there was one like as we're kind of leaving Cliff Palace, there was this tall tower. And the park ranger asked us to stick our heads in and kind of look up. And at the very roof, you can see the remnants of artwork, of Puebloan artwork. Uh, the I, one and single only Yeah, really petroglyph. the only petroglyph that we saw in the park. And it's way up on the roof of this tower. And very cool to see. And it was, it's just beautiful. And also, like, another impressive feat, like having to shimmy up to the top of a tower um, to draw on the, the roof of the cliff. Just amazing. To me, it, it is one of those most beautiful sights to see because it is. there's so much history and soul into that. Absolutely. And they abandoned everything. Presumably by the year 1300, this was all just completely desolate and they were gone. And this community, all these communities, these hundreds of cliff dwellings were just utterly abandoned. I mean, was it drought, a lack of resources, Conflict in foreign communities? Yeah. Was it aliens? Probably not. This isn't Roswell, New Mexico, but you never know. You are listening to the Parklandia podcast from iHeartRadio, hosted by Brad and Matt Kerouac. We'll be back with more of the Parklandia podcast from iHeartRadio. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. 
Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand, when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. I'm Matt. And I'm Brad. You are listening to the Parklandia Podcast from iHeartRadio. We're in the midst of doing some of these cliff-dwelling tours and fresh off our Cliff Palace tour, which was the biggest and most immersive of the tours we did. Uh, another one we did was the Balcony House tour, which is also located along Mesa Top Loop. And this one's much smaller than the Cliff Palace. Only it's, about 40 rooms, right? Yeah, only about 40 rooms compared to like 150. So it's not. it doesn't feel quite as city size, but still very substantial and incredibly impressive, the engineering that went into this. It's definitely a more adventurous tour, and the the rangers are really good about pointing that out and forewarning you in case you have any anxieties or fears. It's very hands-on. There are some... Steep. It's very steep. It it requires some ladders along some very steep cliff faces. There's some tight spaces that you got to squeeze through, so if you have a fear of heights and or tight spaces, be warned. Yeah, we saw young girls cry, mom's butt cheeks tighten. <laughs> <laughs> we saw me almost cry. Yeah. yeah. I even, I, I even shivered, and I love heights. Yeah, for me, it was mostly, I guess, I'm not crazy about heights, but for me, the thing that kind of uh, freaked me out a little bit here was the narrow spaces. It's not like you're spelunking through several hundred feet of a cave or anything like that. It's a pretty short period, but still, it's. I'm not used to being in an environment like that or having to shimmy and crawl. It's not my most comfortable zone. Um, Totally worthwhile, though, that being said. This tour, um, like Cliff Palace, also takes about an hour. 
And it takes you along some pretty steep ladders, like we said, through some narrow passageways. And along the way, you'll learn or really guess more about the Puebloan people who lived here. And this is most notable, I think, in the Kivas. Um, as we're on this tour, the rangers were talking a lot about these central gathering places that were kind of subterranean, tucked into the earth, used as ceremonial rooms to pray for rain and or meditate on the notion of where humans came from, which is pretty deep for a living space. Um, and in those living spaces, there were these little holes in the ground. Yes. And that's where they said that humans came from, with yeah. this little hole in their kivas. Yes. Yeah, so in the middle of all these kivas are these small little holes, only about like six inches wide, probably. Probably um, even less. In the earth. Yeah, probably even less. And so I guess the speculation, uh, according to the park rangers, is that Puebloan people would talk about how humanity or humans as spirits would emerge from the earth via these little holes and then flourish in these communities and carry on and pass on generations that way. Yeah. Just kind of floating up like spirits. Yeah, these kivas are beautiful. I mean, they're, they definitely were their homes as well as their spiritual place. But the Puebloan people, they didn't have a written language. Um, I think there was actually one petroglyph in the whole entire park that we saw. Yeah. And so they didn't have a written language, so they had to speak from the past to the future by passing it down into generation after generation. And these kivas are what actually develop that relationship for them. That's where they passed on their stories. And yes. the, the ranger-led tours, she was telling us all about the different speculations of how they passed on knowledge. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I just remember playing the game of, like, telephone growing up, and mm -hmm. I never got it right. So it's going to be pretty hard to pass that generation after generation. Yeah. Um, but that's why, you know, their spirits still live there, right? And yeah, that's exactly. what we can feel. Yeah. Uh, apparently there was no real written history. It was all oral history. And like you said, it's basically this long, drawn-out, generations-long game of telephone. And things get foggy. And so now all we can do and all the park rangers can do is really speculate and kind of piece things together and connect the dots. And a lot of that is really apparent at Balcony House, where in addition to the kivas, they have these little, the namesake balconies kind of perched on these wooden structures. And the rangers are just kind of guessing what these balconies were used for. I know when we were on our tour, she was suggesting they were used for sitting outside of the windows or for drying meat. Storage um, for, for storage. pots and... yeah. Exactly. And pottery and... Lots of potential. Even to climb up to like the second level of the rooms, which is only about six feet off the ground, but because again, they were only five fives, so only gave them a couple feet yeah. um, of headspace, but they would climb up into the second level, which is crazy because you're just like, that does that looks smaller than a house in Manhattan. <laughs> it definitely does, yeah. Looks like a studio apartment. Um, so, and some of these went pretty high, the balconies... Like, most of them are only, like, two stories, but there was one that went up three or more. It's kind of hard to tell because the balcony is no longer there, but you can see, like, where it could have been. Um, but not all of them are able to withstand the weather and the elements as well as others. Um, there was even this more one exposed. beautiful area where you could see the smoke where oh, it, yeah, like, that was carved out so the walls. Cool. And it was like their fireplace that heated that whole balcony house area. I mean, and then the, the beautiful thing behind that was we got to crawl through that little, like, cave 
which is the only entrance in and out. Like you couldn't oh, yeah. get in and out otherwise. Right. So like some people even speculated that that might have been a jail or for people that were in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just all these different ideas of how they separated each other from each other. And, yes. Uh, so that was pretty I cool know. to learn about. And then as you go into that where they had the two big kivas um, and yeah. then all the small rooms above it. Yeah. Very, very cool. And I, I just can't get over the fact that, like, there was no other entrance into Balcony House. You had to crawl through long, narrow, claustrophobic passageways, which is, again, for, I mean, I'm very lucky I didn't live during this time. I keep thinking that because I would not not do well with that. Yeah, no, there was definitely a lot of times where you were like, like, what, claustrophobia, fear of heights. All my fears. Oh, my gosh, like everything. Um, yeah, the only thing missing is, like, a great white shark. <laughs> yes, that is true. You are afraid of Jaws. My trifecta of nightmares. Yeah, but, you know, just observing all of it, it was crazy. I even remember the ranger was so close to the edge at one point. Um, yeah. My mother, she was like, she goes, um, you're getting a little close there. And she goes, oh, yeah, I've done this a lot. Like, don't worry about me, honey. Yeah. And then, like, right after that, somebody dropped their sunglasses over the edge. Oh, gosh. I was like, they, they warned against this. Like, yeah. Put your eyeglass straps on. Stop messing around. Right. I had no sympathy for that person. Like, sorry. No, I was actually really irritated. Yeah. Because I'm like, okay, great. Now they just grow in there. Like, a ranger's not going to go down there to remove your glasses. So you really have to make sure that, like, when you go to these national parks that you're bundled up, you are tidied up, you know, your hair's done. Don't put on a lot of lotion or anything, like your sunblock, because you have to protect your skin. Mm -hmm. But, like, oils, It for me— the true lesson from this in particular tour was that the oils can really damage stuff. And I didn't know how many chemicals we have on us on a daily basis. So going back to like that natural uh, lifestyle a little bit more. I mean, I love my cologne and my things, but, you know, yeah, there's a time and a place, place for them. Yeah, you don't right. need to put on your cologne to go to the national park. You know, no, use minimal impact, especially in these areas. Yeah, absolutely. And she pointed out, the park ranger along the tour, she pointed to one of the walls and she says like see all this black kind of smudgy marking like this is from human hands touching this too much and this is what happens when chemically humans you know we're filled with chemicals it's not a pretty thing to think about but if you put your hands all over these delicate centuries old structures then you can erode them you can mark them up it's it just it doesn't look good it's not respectful just leave the leave the lotions and stuff in cologne. You know, this isn't a sushi restaurant. No need to get dolled up. And you know what was really amazing is I didn't realize, like, this park was just recently discovered. I mean, it was by ranchers. Yeah. And they were, like, chasing down their cattle into the mountains. And they that's how they discovered this national park. So you see these old pictures of, like, cowboys. She, I think she handed those around. And she was just showing us, like, who— these people were, and that discovered it. And I'm like, oh, Wild West Cowboys, I love it. Like, it's kind of cool to see that they rediscovered it, and, like, they were blown away, obviously. But at this point, there was photographs and sort of things around, so it's more recent. It is. Yeah, in, like, the grand scheme of things, and compared to a lot of other national parks especially, um, that's crazy that they were just, like, chasing, a ca- like, a cow or something. Uh, I'm worried about that cow. Did it fall off the cliff? Like, <laughs> She she never completed that thought and told us what happened to the cow. Not all animals are as clumsy as you. I'm actually very adept. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Parklandia podcast from iHeartRadio, hosted by Brad and Matt Kerouac. We'll be back with more of the Parklandia podcast from iHeartRadio. Hi, I'm Brad. And I'm Matt. And today we're talking about Mesa Verde National Park. We weren't able to access the Weatherhill Mesa of the park area since our view is too long. They do give plenty of places to drop off trailers if that's the issue. Mm-hmm. This one, the one that we did, was the most popular and has the most tours and attractions. There's another area called the Weatherall Mesa, which is not accessible for larger vehicles, so we weren't able to do those cliff-dwelling tours. But that's fine. Balcony House and Cliff Palace are wonderful and amazing, and for good reason, the two most popular tours at Mesa Verde. But aside from the tours, we've actually done a lot more hiking trails, like the Moorfield Campground area, which is the best bet for the trailheads, of which Matt did all of them. Yes, we've reached the part of the park where I hike obsessively. Yes, and I take some relaxation and kick back a little bit, but I also go on some amazing hikes with Matt. Totally. So the part of the park, which is best for hiking, is the Moorfield Campground area. It's kind of close to the entrance point, and it's got a few trailheads here, all varying levels of difficulty. I was able to do all of them, of course. Um, starting with the, I did the knife edge trail first, which is super easy. It's like a easy two mile out and back along the northern edge of the mesas. Great, amazing views of the valley floor. And then everything is kind of lowered and flat. For most of what you can see, there are like mountains in the far distance, but it's just like a really vivid lush green valley and then rocky terrain kind of falling down into it. And while you were doing that, I was actually at the RV cleaning bugs off the windows and relaxing, hanging out with Finny, you know, enjoying that little bit of time by myself. But I think that, you know, that is one of the greatest trails because you actually get to on the top of the highest mesa, right, in the park? Yeah, well, that's another one. That's another one. Oh, it's a different one. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Which which one was that? That's the Point Lookout Trail, which the trailhead is not far from the knife edge one. And that is pretty strenuous just because it's so steep. It's about the same length. It's like two miles round trip. But the big difference here is you're going up some seriously steep switchbacks to get there. And it brings you directly up to the top of the mesa and right over top of the park. It's in- incredible. You're way up there <laughs> and unnervingly close to the edge at, at times for sure. But the views are just unlike anything else you're going to see here or most anywhere. And it was very cool to be up there. I think I was up there like by myself. There's no other people on that trail at the time. And you said there's like no railings or anything. Yeah, surprisingly, no railings. Um, They really trust you not to slip and fall, (laughs) which I appreciate the vote of confidence, I guess. Um, But yeah, I went up there, had a little time to myself, took some amazing photos. You could see way down in the distance the campground where we... We're staying that time, um, like a little dot way down in the valley. Just loved it. And the crazy thing was everything's kind of quiet up there at that level of atmosphere, I guess. And there'd be these little birds that were like very fast-moving birds and it would zoom, like, zoom by me and it would sound like a little jet. It was kind of scary. <laughs> um, I, I was a little afraid that they would fly into my head or something and then... I'm sad I Who missed knows? that. Yeah. I would love to see a bird smack you in the face. Right into my head. And then chaos ensues. Um, so that's the Point Lookout Trail. And that's 
those were by far the best views I saw in the park. It's you're not going to get a, a vantage point like that at any other time, any other trail. Yeah, and then a short uh, drive from there was the Prater Ridge Trail, right? Yeah, that's the one that we did together. It's pretty moderate, but it's the longest trail in this section. It can, I I think, like, you can do a larger loop where it's eight miles. You can do one that's kind of abbreviated. I think it's like like five five. and a half. Yeah, it's like five and a half. And there are some switchbacks, and it brings you up to the top of a mesa, but you're not nearly as high as Point Lookout Trail, and it's not as tough. Yeah, there's like the north, and then there's the south loop of it, and then the whole loop. And as we were walking through it, I just thought it was so beautiful because you've seen a lot of, like, dead trees, like beautifully dead, grayish trees. Beautifully dead. Like, uh, not dead to me. (laughs) (laughs) But then you see these, like, this lush greenery. And to me, it was just so beautiful being able to, like, walk up and down that trail with you and have, like, these casual conversations. Um and just see other people. Like, I saw other people giggling and, like, having oh, fun. And, yeah, uh, I was giggling. Yeah, definitely. And there actually could be bears on that trail. Um, we were warned that there's a possibility to see bears and things like that. So as we're walking through this area, um, we see a ranger, and I'm like, oh, maybe he's looking at a bear. And he wasn't. But um, he's a temporary ranger from Oregon, we found out. Mm-hmm. So he actually comes down for the summer. Um, on this assignment, but he goes to different national parks every year because you can sign up and do that. So I think that that's like a fun aspect of the National Park Service is like they do look for like different yearly volunteers and and items like that um, along these trails. Yeah, sounds really fun. Very tempting. I like that idea a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know that huge snake? There are so many snakes in Mesa Verde, apparently. I mean, we walked directly into two. Um, but yeah, there was a big snake up here on this trail. I almost walked right into it. I used to start randomly recording at different times. And at that point, I just started recording a video of you. I mean, like three seconds. And then you're like, huh? And I like throw the camera yeah. down and because I, I didn't know like what was going on. And then there's a snake there. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so then I'm like, okay, I need to start recording again. Mm -hmm. So then I start recording the snake, you know, a comfortable distance. Thank goodness for the the zoom on my camera phone. You got a real candid squeal from me in that video. Uh, That snake was rather large, sprawled out across the trail, just sitting. I don't think it was slithering. It was just lying there and blended in kind of with the ground. It was sunbathing. Um, Sunbathing, sure. I get it. Um, but I think this is the snake where we learned that it eats rattlesnakes. That's insane. Yeah. What, did, what was the name of this one? It was the, um, something about its headbutting abilities. The oh my gosh. Headbutts. Oh my gosh. How, well, that's fine. We'll, we'll have to, uh, follow it up on Instagram with, uh, what the name of the snake was. The tough little snake it or really big is. snake. It was pretty big. But jumping back to those bears for a minute, you know, the sad thing is I've, Watched the news, and one bear had to be put down because it attacked a human because it was used to being close to humans. And then I just read an article last night about other bears um, having to be put down because they've been fed and bred into society too closely, and they're afraid of them turning on people. So going back to the idea of, like, you know, taking care of the parks and leaving it better than uh, you found it, is we really want to make sure that you understand, don't feed these animals, don't mess with these animals. If they are crossing the road, you work around them. They don't work around you. Um, 
because we don't want to harm these animals or have to unnecessarily put them down because we start feeding them. So really taking care of your parks is more than just your parks because these animals, these bears were not out, were outside of this park, but um, it's a really super important part of taking care of our nature. Um, but continuing yeah. on in a non-depressive uh, thing is the beautiful hike and continuing that. Yes. Yeah, that was a great hike. Um, there were just so many, like, lookout points, I, which are my favorite part of this trail. You could just get so up close and have these huge panoramic views of these deep, tree-lined valleys below. Um, just amazing. And the, the best, best uh, photo opportunities, for sure. I loved it. Yeah, and I remember when we got to that halfway mark, I, we did the North Trail together, the North Loop. Yes. And then you the went on and did the South Loop. So I went back down to the RB, checked on Finney, relaxed, got some more water. It wasn't that I couldn't continue, but I, I had my my heart full. You know, we have our hearts full at different times, and Matt is when his is completely exhausted. <laughs> yeah, mine seemingly never gets full, and I just keep going and going and going. But... I thought maybe you could take the time to tell us about the South Loop and how it might have been a little bit different. Yeah, I, I thought the best views were along the South Loop portion, um, kind of a three-mile area that branches off the, the main North Loop. And that's where I had so many of those lookouts where you can get close enough to the edge while still feeling safe and see these huge, huge sprawling valleys that go on and on and on. And parts of it, you see, like, the park road weaving through it, the cars way down below. That was really neat uh, and just kind of puts in perspective, like, wow, I'm pretty high up. I'm crazy high up. Yeah. Speaking about cars and RVs and Mesa Verde, I think that we need to give a special props out to Mesa Verde for how RV-friendly this place really is. I mean, from the visitor center to all the trailheads, there's plenty of rooms for RVs of all sizes. I mean, it was a super easy park visit with our RV we just had to drop off our trailer, never have to worry about parking, which is a frequent headache in national parks. Yeah, it was and really nice that they had that special designated area for RVs to drop off trailers. It just makes it so much easier. We were able to move our RV around and navigate quite easily. We couldn't get the Weatherall Mesa area because we're too long. But aside from that, everything was a piece of cake. Yeah, the drives are very easy. And, you know, after we come back from this quick break, we're going to talk about the town of Makos. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the Mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting Mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Brad. And I'm Matt. We're the hosts of Parklandia, and today we're talking about Mesa Verde National Park. Food. We're going to talk about the quaint little artsy town of Mancos. Yeah, Mancos is technically the town where Mesa Verde is located, although the heart or quote-unquote downtown area of Mancos is a few miles away, and it is so beautiful and lovely. Highly recommend a visit here, especially for breakfast at Absolute Bakery and Cafe, which was such a surprise. We absolutely loved it. I mean, absolutely loved absolute. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I have absolutely on my hat because yeah. I love the word absolutely. So it's, it's a just good one. Yeah. absolutely the best. Yeah, we actually learned, we got that recommendation to go here from another traveling couple that were randomly camped next to when we were in New Mexico at Carlsbad Caverns National Park. Yeah. Which we'll talk about some they other time. They were so nice. They were so nice and clearly have great taste in breakfast because this place was wonderful. Yeah, hippies don't die, they bake. Hmm. That was their slogan. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I thought that was just something you were saying. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> so this place was super popular. We um, had to wait for a little while. So just keep in mind if you're starving to, I don't know, have a snack or something beforehand because you're most likely going to have to wait for a bit. It's a smallish place. It fills up really quickly. Um, it's bustling, but well worth it. But that really brings us into the perfect setup for they actually asked us if we wanted to be seated with another couple or another two people. Yeah, because they they said that they wouldn't have another two-top for a little while, but they had a four-top, and they were like, do you guys want to do this sharing thing? And obviously we had 
initially I'm just like, no. But you were like, you're enthusiastic and much more like open to stuff like that. I was like, absolutely. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. But <laughs> I thought it was great because meeting Kate and Marianne was probably the highlight of that day. Oh, it worked out so well. I'm so glad we did it. We sat at a little table with um, these two women who were also going to Mesa Verde that day. And they had been there before, but it had been 30 years before. Yeah. Ooh, so this is a Mesa Verde reunion. They've, they're like guides. Like they've done a lot of like different like trail guiding and like uh, outfitting. I think they both owned Outfitters. Kate used to own an Outfitter and Marianne currently does at a different part in Colorado. And so I just thought it was amazing meeting these two, as I would like to say, trailblazers of national parks and yes. public spaces. Oh, very much so. Um, you know, they they were just so fun and full of energy. And they life. really were. They were inspiring to be around and very joyous and pleasant. And Kate, I remember, was also a writer, so we connected over that. She was much more poetic than I was. That became immediately clear. I'm like, wow, you're a very poetic, uh, well-spoken person. Snaps for Kate. Yeah, she was, she was great. They were both great, and it was lovely to talk to them. Yeah. Marianne, I thought what was interesting is she was kind of like the you in that that situation where she was like, I just want to be with my friend, you know? Like, we're, we're re- reuniting. Oh, I can tell. I can relate to her. I'm like, yeah. And I, I was it. like, Kate or Marianne, we completely understand you. <laughs> and, but we are so thankful that you guys both said yes because it was like one of those moments where we just got to enjoy amazing food made yeah. by hippies and <laughs> enjoyed beautiful company. And then they even taught um, – yes. Uh, talk to us about the Grand Canyon and how they're building, they're trying to build a gondola and there's a gentleman there that is trying to stop that, you know, because we need to preserve not to add tourism to our national parks. Yeah, these aren't amusement parks. No, No. we don't need rides like that. Although I I remember thinking when they were first talking about this gondola, I thought they were talking about like the gondola boats in like Venice and I'm like, what? (laughs) How would that work? Yeah, no, we do not want to ruin our national parks. So hopefully that um, this brings a little voice to that and people start to hear about the different things that they're trying to do at national parks. We want the John Muir Teddy Roosevelt parks, not the tourism-filled national parks. Yes, not the Walt Disney parks, although love those for their own thing. Shout out to them. Yeah, we do love you. Time. Animal Kingdom. Yeah, so yeah, a great time at Absolute bakery and cafe, just delicious, wholesome Americana diner food, and then also wonderful pastries, too. We got some snacks on the on the way out, um, like an oatmeal date thing. Oh my gosh. I remember we got them for us to share, and I just like ate them both. Well, you ate the half of one. You at least left me half of the second one, and Scraps. I got to eat that the next day, um, and I was really depressed I didn't get the full thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I was, too. Yeah, selfish. I mean, I, I ate the whole <laughs> other one but <laughs> yeah you're like you're mad that you didn't get two really yeah, and, right now yeah okay I, I want more right now i know worth the hey uh do you uh airdrop or <laughs> drop ship i mean yeah because oh, you love me. your bakeries um but i guess you know and driving back towards the park we have our beautiful um stay at mesa verde rb park yeah that was so good what a treat it was like could not be more convenient. It was practically right across the street from the main entrance. And accommodations were just so clean and perfect. And they had a swimming pool, which was a little too chilly for me. The, um, the staff was very friendly in all kinds yeah. of ways. I mean, even when we went and parked and, like, our RV and trailer was a little too long for the space, they didn't give us an attitude. The gentleman, he was just so kind. And he was like, you know what? Let's just try to move you, even though, like, 
people could still get around you. Let's just move you to a better space. So they moved us to that better space. And, um, you know, they just were extremely hospitable. Hospitable. Hospitable, yes. They were. They really were. It was great. And then also gave us an excuse to get some more stuff, even though we didn't wind up. They have a community kind of fire pit area, and we didn't use that. We just wound up, like, making them in the RV, which is fine. I was in the mood for s'mores, so it's like, let's just make this happen. Believe me, he guilted me into making s'mores in the RV. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I I went along with it. But I love that they had not only the jacuzzi that was next to the pool, but they also had their adult-only jacuzzi area, which is conveniently located close to it, but it's uh, separated from the rest, so that way parents can maybe still sit and watch their children but they're not like next to them and they can have their own time or people who don't aren't parents can just go into the dark only. And it's like a separate area. Great. Um, So the way that they laid out their RV park, it's a 1.1 miles away from the visitor center. So it's like so close. close. I mean, practically walk there, except it's a highway. So you shouldn't. Yeah. Don't, don't risk uh, life and limb for that. Uh, Just drive over there. (laughs) My favorite. All right. It's time for one of our favorite segments of the podcast uh, where we ask each other our favorite things about the National Park. So, Brad, what was your favorite thing at Mesa Verde National Park? My favorite thing about Mesa Verde National Park had to be the soul. I mean, you just felt it. And every moment, on every hike, on every um, tour, on even in the drive and the around the top. I mean, it was just... I just felt so much spirit there that that was my favorite thing um, about Mesa Verde National Park. Uh, if I could bring three things, though, that doesn't that's not really involved with that is I would definitely love to go rock climbing here. Um, I would love to get transported back and get some hunting equipment so that way I can hunt just like the Puebloan people have done throughout their history. And then a motorcycle three things that pretty much Matt hates um, I would bring. Yeah, that doesn't sound fun for me. Actually, none of that. (laughs) Literally. Like, there's three things. I'm like, let's go rock climbing. No. I want a motorcycle. Nope. Let's go hunting. Absolutely. Oh, no. No. Even though I love taxidermy, but I don't want to hunt. Yeah. But does that lead into one of your favorite things? Well, my... (laughs) No, no. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite thing here was the balcony house tour, specifically. I just liked how kind of intense it was, but not in a like horrifying way. It was just scary enough where it got your blood pumping. And you got to just do things that I would never normally do, like climb ladders along cliffs and then squeeze through these narrow little rooms and also learn more about the Cubas and watch people drop their sunglasses into the valley. It was just all so fun, so great, um, and endlessly fascinating and illuminating. Um, so the three things that I would bring to Mesa Verde, um, I would say definitely bring an appetite slash money to go to Absolute Bakery and Cafe. That's essential, and I miss that place already. Um, I would also bring good kind of firm hiking shoes, ones that have a good grip because some of the trails we did or most of the trails we did are um, requires some scrambling and some hands-on activities. So you don't want to be slipping and, like, crashing into the rocks or anything like that. Definitely not. No, 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 no. And then the other 
thing I would bring would be, whether it's for glasses or sunglasses, to bring a strap of some sort so that you don't want to be losing that stuff off like the the cliff edge, as we saw. Absolutely not. (laughs) So definitely uh, be careful with that. And actually, mine was two truths and a lie. Two of those I would love to do, and one, I'm absolutely not about that life. So if you want to go ahead and message us on Twitter with your answer, at Parklandia Podcast, we would love to tell you in our next future episode. Yes, that's good. I'm, I was worried that you wanted to do all three of those things. Although still, I don't approve of any of them. You've been listening to Parklandia. The show was created by us, Matt and Brad Kerouac, along with Christopher Hesiotis. Our executive producer is Christopher Hesiotis, produced and edited by Mike Johns. If you're not already subscribed, you can make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or anywhere you get your podcasts. We take a lot of pictures on the road. Follow us at parklandiapodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Parklandia Podcast. Special thanks to Gabrielle Collins, Crystal Waters, and the rest of the Parklandia crew. But we always want to thank you for listening. Storm and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.